Hello and welcome to the Blair Upper Cervical Podcast, a show where we interview top Blair Upper Cervical chiropractors to glean their insights, tips, and passion. In each episode, your hosts, Dr. Kevin Pekka and Dr. John Stenberg, bring something unique and inspiring to help you grow and succeed. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Blair Technique Podcast. Uh, really excited to have my friend, Dr. Bryant Harris, who's a friend of the Blair Society. Uh, he's got some Blair training, has attended Blair seminars and conferences, uh, but has a real passion and strength in pediatric care. And so I wanted to talk with him about the merging of the two concepts, because I know a lot of uh, upper cervical docs see pediatric patients, uh, and a lot of pediatric docs adjust the upper cervical spine. Uh, but someone that has uh, a high level of training in both areas isn't as common. So I think he's going to bring an interesting perspective and we can all, you know, take what we learn from Dr. Harris and apply it to our practices. So um, if you'd like, Doc, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us how you got into chiropractic and started the journey and we'll go from there. Yeah. So uh, thanks, John, for having me. I appreciate it so much. Um, so as you said, my name is Brian Harris. Um, I Ended up going to Life West and I graduated back in 2008 and um, I got into chiropractic um, because my mom told me to. And there's a very uh, convoluted uh, story that goes along with that. I had uh, all intentions of actually going to medical school. And after my freshman year of college, I came back and spoke to my pediatrician and my pediatrician told me not to become a medical doctor. Um, and that sort of threw me for a loop. Um, and the reason why he told me that, he was a solo provider in his office. And he was like, if you're basing your decision to become a medical doctor or go into the medical field based on this, I don't think you'll be able to have what I have. He's mm-hmm. like, it's turning into more of a quantity of care and not the quality of care. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, that was a little bit of a wrench in um, what I want to do since I worked really hard to go to the undergrad institution that I went to and I was volunteering the hospital and everything else. So when I came back home from that meeting, um, I told my mom um, that he told me not to become a medical doctor. And she was like, you should become a chiropractor. And I'm like, wait, what, really? Um, mind you, background, um, chiropractic saved my mom from having two back surgeries. So mm. my mom was a chiropractic evangelist. Like she was going out spreading the gospel um, to anybody and everybody that was willing to listen. Um, and mind you, I also went to a chiropractor when I was 16 because I got cross-checked to my neck when I was a uh, playing lacrosse. And I couldn't turn my neck and I also was a competitive swimmer. So that was a very difficult for me to try to breathe while swimming if I couldn't turn my neck. Um, so I got adjusted here and there, but it wasn't anything that I thought anything of. Um, so um, I ended up shadowing a bunch of chiropractors uh, from that point on. Um, and then I ended up getting a scholarship to Life West for academics. Um, and then, um, so I flew cross country and I ended up in California and I thought I knew what chiropractic was. And then I got there and then I realized I knew nothing about chiropractic. Um, and it sort of changed my world. Um, I didn't know that you could see kids in chiropractic. I thought it was just primarily uh, sports or um, dealing with musculoskeletal pains. Um, and then um, I just got introduced to a whole bunch of other things. Um, and. I originally practiced out in California, and then I came back to the East Coast, and now I currently practice in Annapolis, Maryland, and I've been practicing here for um, the past seven years, but I've been in practice for 14. Awesome. 
And you've got some uh, knee chest training, right? Yes, I have some knee chest training I've done. Also, as you alluded to, I've done uh, the Blair series. I've also attended the Blair conferences. So yeah, I'm definitely an articular base uh, uh, upper cervical chiro. Yeah, I I like that distinction because we do kind of have differences of opinion and, and different techniques, but ultimately we're trying to accomplish a similar end goal. Uh, were you, so you wanted to be a pediatrician. Were you always just passionate about taking care of kids? Like, where do you think that comes from? Um, I was always really good with kids. Like I was a um, kid swim coach growing up. Um, I really just had a really good rapport with kids. I volunteered at summer camps. I was a lifeguard. Um, so I just had a really good rapport with kids and I had a knack for it. Um, so yeah, so I was going to become a pediatrician and then um then I fell into this, not really plans fell change. into it, but yeah, plans change and I still get to work with kids. Um, so yeah, it's been uh, a fun process. It's been a little bit longer of a process because working with kids as a, as a chiropractor can be a little bit more challenging in terms of getting trust of the parents and everything else for because they have their preconceived notions of what chiropractors do right. um, and don't do. Um, so yeah. Yeah, you make a good point. A lot of us, when we enter the career field. Like you go to chiropractic school. I was the same way. I didn't know anything about any of this. So, and that's somebody who's going to pursue it as their career. So let alone the the average person out in the world, you know, with a kid that's got chronic ear infections or colic or whatever they're, they're facing, this is not something that's often, you know, the first stop. Uh, and so there are definitely challenges. And, And I know in upper cervical, we have interesting challenges with communication and the way we the way we coordinate care too, than than what most folks are thinking of. So you've got double whammy on that. Um, But, but it's, it's a cool thing about chiropractic where your natural talents and gifts and the things that you're passionate about, there's, there's an avenue to, to do that in chiropractic because there's so many different options. If you're passionate about taking care of athletes, you can do sports chiropractic, kids, complex cases, family practice, you know, there's, there's a a spot for everybody. Uh, Sometimes finding your way there is the challenge but you can. And, uh, you know, most of the time, if you stick with it, you'll find your way. Okay. So let's talk about the credentials and the training on the pediatric side, because I know everybody says they see kids and families, but I've seen some crazy stuff that people are doing with kids in, in a chiropractic office. So we're, we're not just talking about somebody who, who prefers and likes to see kids, but you've done advanced training in pediatric and prenatal care. So you're well, well qualified uh, more than the average chiropractor to do that. So talk to me about the credentialing process and, and how someone becomes an expert in pediatric chiropractic. So um, I, one of my core values is actually knowledge. So um, don't take for what I do as what you need to do. Um, I just feel like I need to know more. Um, not necessarily do more, but I just need to know more. So I have a certification in pediatrics by the Academy of Chiropractic Family Practice, um, which is the ICPA series, the 180 hours for that. I'm also perinatal certified and Webster certified through the ICPA as well. So the perinatal certification is an additional 72 hours um, to get perinatal certified. And then uh, as I said, I was Webster certified. I'm also Focus certified through the um, Focus Academy, which is led by Amy Spolstra out in um, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which works with kids with behavioral learning and developmental issues. I also have um, the uh, certification through Marty Rosen. I'm a certified SOT, SOT pediatric practitioner as well. 
Um, so, and then I also do advanced training with Monica Berger um, with her Developing Minds program as well. Um, so, and that's just a continuing education and that's gonna go for a, um, uh, basically a certification or a diplomat status with that. Whether or not I'm gonna actually take the test and do that is another story. But yeah. I definitely do have a lot of information and knowledge surrounding uh, pediatrics, perinatal, preconception, postnatal, all that stuff. Yeah. And that's an interesting thing because there's so many unique physiological circumstances you're, you're referencing right there and different seasons of life that where it just is different than, you know, the, the typical way that we typically interact with patients in an upper cervical setting. I mean, when you're talking at the SOT work, you're looking at the cranial, uh, work and the sutures there. When you're talking about, uh, you know, the neurodevelopmental stuff, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, sensory integration and, you know, primitive reflex things that go into that. There's, it's a whole lot more than just which direction is the bone and where do I need to push it. And, uh, with these kids, uh, I, 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 for one, don't see a ton of kids. I, I do, you know, but it's not my passion. So I don't seek out, you know, uh, pediatric patients per se, uh, but I do have friends in town here that have, you know, done all that ICPA diplomate work and man, the stuff they know and the resource that they are to the community is invaluable because there's a lot of times nowhere else for these people to go and actually find functional help. So, uh, good on you for for going out of your way because that's an investment of your time and your resources to get that knowledge, uh, just to to present the opportunity for folks to have access to a different idea. So, um, awesome. And, and so we referenced this earlier, but let's kind of get into the nuts and bolts of pediatric care and upper cervical practice, and, and maybe sort of the specialty work aside, and we can revisit that later. But with you know some of the basic pediatric principles and the things that are most applicable to our listeners, you know, about seeing kids in a, in an upper cervical office. Let's talk about some of the practical considerations for seeing kids in an office because it changes your flow, changes your culture, changes the equipment you need, changes the staffing situation. There's a lot, lot to go over. So uh, let's talk about maybe on the nuts and bolts side of things, some of the scheduling and flow considerations. And just, I guess, if you want to say logistics of having kids in the office. Yeah. So regarding having kids in the office, it depends on um, as it depends on the population that you want to see, whether or not if you want to see newborns and infants, whether or not you want to see um, people who have sensory uh, uh, sensory challenges, developmental challenges, um, or you want to see more adolescent teenagers. That's going to change how the schedule and flow goes in general, because um, if you are an upper cervical diet that you're just used to scanning and determining whether or not the holding or if they need an adjustment and they go and rest, um, it's gonna be a little bit different because infants and newborns wiggle, they cry. Have they been fed? Um, do they have a dirty diaper? Um, are they hot? Are they cold? Um, so um, sometimes it takes a little bit more time and you may wanna allocate or know that, explain to the parent that, okay, we're gonna wait a little bit, ask, uh, let allow the kiddo to calm down. I'm gonna go see somebody else and then I'm gonna come back and see you in a second. All right, so you might have to have a little bit of patience. Um, you might wanna allocate, depends if um, you are starting to see more kids and your patients aren't used to it while um, patients are resting. You need to be mindful of that because if you want a more solitude, quiet, tranquil space, and then all of a sudden out, out in the adjusting area or in your waiting room, um, kids are screaming, they're running up and down the hallways, um, some people don't like that and they're not anticipating that if they're starting for 
those changes. So sometimes you might let some of your patients know, it's like, okay, at these certain times after school, you may see more kids here. You might wanna come during your lunch break or you might see them earlier in the day um, just so you may not have that overlap where people are coming, they're expecting X, Y, and Z, more quiet, tranquil, um, you know, not as crazy as they, they're leaving their house to get away from their kids, to have some me time, and then they come to your office and all of a sudden it's more kids and it's more mm -hmm. chaos. Um, so that can throw some people for a loop that way. Because there for sure will be chaos. With kids in the office, all that stuff is always on the table. Screaming, yes, crying, toys everywhere. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like, all part of it. Um, and then also, if you choose to work with kids who have sensory challenges um, or behavioral issues, you also have to take some of those things into consideration for them, meaning that they may not like having other people in the office. Um, they may not like loud noises. They may not know how to handle um, this increased stress and de increased demands on them. Um, so a lot of times they need more um, predictability in their life. So I tell people like, okay, listen, we're gonna schedule at the same time. I have to schedule the same people around them. So this individual recognizes the same people that are gonna be in the room or in the office at the same time. So nothing will throw off their, um, their patient visit to allow it to move as smoothly as possible. Because sometimes one different thing can cause chaos in, in your practice and in that patient visit. And then you may not be able to get the adjustment and you may just have to you know, reschedule or do something different um, because these kids' nervous systems are extremely sensitive. Mm. Um, and that's what you're trying to do is trying to help calm down that nervous system so their bodies can adapt, evolve, and grow. So, so yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting point you just made that I guess I, I wouldn't have thought of on the, on the surface is how many opportunities there are for that sympathetic input, you know, for things to just be different enough to trigger you know, that uh, response and, and totally you'll work against the direction you're trying to go with them. And uh, it, it, that's an interesting thing about having blended populations, right? It's, it's almost like cluster booking these different groups into, into categories or times. And uh, it's the timing with kids is interesting because I, I'm personally, I'm not pushing kids, right? Like if, if you're in their personal space, you're touching them, you know, no matter what age they are, I mean, they're not always, they don't understand what's going on and the communication's not there in the same way that would be with an adult. So there are times where, you know, it might take us a couple of visits to even get a kid adjusted the first time, because it's like, we're not, we're not going to push this and make them hate going to the chiropractor, like they hate going to the dentist and everything else, because it's scary and their privacy is invaded. So, um, it's, it's definitely worth communicating with your staff if you've got them and whoever else is involved in the flow and the management of the office too, to kind of make sure you're all on the same page with that. Uh, so that they're not, you know, trying to rush them through at the, at the typical upper cervical pace and, you know, upset the whole ecosystem of, you know, the conditions they, they require. Um, and one, and one of the things that one of my mentors told me as well is with working with kids in, in terms of like, okay, especially if you have a busier practice, one of the things you can do is um, send them a video of, or have your front staff of the doctor send a video introducing themselves and do a walkthrough of your practice show them what the tools you'd be using, where the toys are, what the office looks like. So then they were like, okay, I've seen some of these things before and therefore they'll be a little bit more comfortable. So they come in, they're like, oh, I remember from that video, this is that person who was talking. Yeah. Oh yes, this is the tools that they said they were gonna be using. These were where the toys are at. 
And sometimes again, you may not be even, you, you may just have them in the waiting room and you'll just pop up, you know, you know, sparingly, peek out, say hello, play with them a little bit and then walk away and go see somebody else. And you may not actually have them even come in for an appointment. You just have that doing that initially so they get more comfortable in your office and comfortable with you knowing that you may not do anything to them and they may just come into your office to play. Yeah. And then they get more comfortable in that space. Um, just because as you said, people do have aversions to you know, doctors because they always think that they equate going to a new provider as they're going to get a shot or something else like that. Yeah. And they're like, I don't want it. Yeah. hundred percent. I, when I interned as a, uh, life student, I interned with, um, Dr. Liliana Warner and she's big in the BGI community, but has a huge, well, not huge. She has a really well-established busy family practice and she's adjusting kids in the hall, you know, on the stairs, in the play area. I mean, it was kind of like, I really appreciated observing her move with them and kind of flow with them because it, it took the focus off of, I'm the doctor, you need to get in here into my space and like, let me do what I need to do to you. It was kind of, you know, more of a, what's the word, more of a synergistic relationship and, and the kids learned to trust her and they would move in that direction to go in the room and be on the table. But a lot of times, like you said, it started with, you know, the first few visits were building that rapport and the familiarity and the trust and with the parents too. I mean, they're going to watch the way you interact with the kids. I think about this a lot differently now having a son of my own, like I saw kids before I had a parent, but it's just different, you know? And so I know now what a big deal it is for someone to entrust their baby to you, you know, to check them and care for them. That's a big deal. And I know we, we value it. We think it's a, it's a no brainer for parents and we can explain all the reasons why, but there is there is a high level of trust that needs to be earned, you know, from a parent to be able to do that. And so uh, going the extra mile with the things you're talking about, I think shows that you care more than uh, others, right? And it's going to build that trust even before the interactions happen. And one of the other things is like, like I had a kiddo, like I came into the office to see one kiddo today because they travel like 40 minutes to come see me. And the only day they could come in is on a Friday. Um, And I saw them when they were younger and now they're coming in because they've been having recurrent ear infections uh, recently and the mom doesn't want to you know get tubes so um he saw me when he was an infant um and then up until the point where he just started walking and now it was about maybe a year later they came back in and um i remember today like he had some aversions to me initially because he didn't realize who i was yeah but now it was like, okay, we can have conversations. Like he doesn't really speak all that much, but I asked him today, I was like, do you want to get adjusted? He was like, yeah. Do you want to get on the table? He was like, no. Hmm. Okay. So you want to get adjusted? He was like, yeah. But you don't want to get on the table? He's like, no. Do you want me to get on the ground? He was like, yeah. So I was like, okay, we'll do it on the ground. If that's where, if that's where you feel the safest. Sure. And this, and through this process, for me to be able to get a clean adjustment on you, I will sit on the ground and yeah. I'll do it on the ground. Yeah. So and you, you, even the step of asking the permission and kind of, um, you know, that gives them a little bit of agency, I guess, for lack of a better word, that you're not just the guy there to do something to them, but it's, it's, you know, you have a say in how this goes and we want to make sure that you feel, you know, like you're paid attention to with that. It's a big deal. Or even when I work with the babies, I still ask permission. I let them know who I am. I let them know what I'm about to be doing. I'm coming into their space um, just because I'm just putting that energy out there. Because again, infants and newborns can't 
communicate with us. They communicate via crying um, and you see what their tone is like. So by me letting them know, it's like, okay, I'm gonna be coming into your space. I'll be touching your legs. I'm gonna be touching your head. I'm gonna be touching your neck. You know, during the examination, I was like, this is what I'm gonna be doing. You know, just like you would tell a regular, you know, adult patient that, you know, has some more cognitive, higher cognitive function that they would understand. But kiddos understand too, because if you just go into their space and start touching them, and they don't know what's going on, even, think, even though you think they don't know what's going on, they'll start crying, they'll start getting resistance, they'll start grabbing your hands, they'll start doing everything else underneath the sun to stop that from happening. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the takeaway would be if you're seeing kids in your office kind of doing the things you're doing and you're noticing a lot of that um, reaction, then maybe that's a that's a tip that you take home and say like, okay, maybe I need to slow down and, and explain what I'm doing and ask for permission and kind of take that uh, and change, change the way that I'm approaching these situations. Because honestly, the thing with kids, it's like, we understand the potential of getting them adjusted early and well, and man, do it right. You know, like why rush to, why rush to get to the adjustment? It's like, we want them to, to get the proper care and get it in a way that suits their needs. And that's what you're talking about. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, let's talk about evaluation because I know we all have our own training, right? We've all been taught to look at a supine leg check or Atlas Foss attempt readings and all that kind of thing. Um, and then there's a million other like things that, you know, people will do randomly uh, with kids. So let's talk about maybe some, uh, some key components of a history and evaluation that if you're, you know, just the average upper cervical doc and you've got kids coming in the office, things that you should really be mindful of with your kids. Yeah, so it, again, it also varies when what age those kids are coming into the practice. Um, so that would also gauge what you would be doing a little bit differently. Um, with dealing with kids, uh, specifically um, kids who um, aren't speaking or are they younger, because a lot of times those kids are coming in for either more organic issues, mm-hmm. um, whether it's going to be you know colic, constipation, ear infections. Um, feeding issues, latching issues, uh, they're having um, developmental delays, uh, speech issues, um, whatever it may be. Um, The history is the biggest part. That's when you're gathering the most information is from the history because your chiropractic exam isn't really going to change all that much. All right. So from an upper cervical standpoint, you can still do your whole upper cervical exam, whether it's, you know, doing the Atlas Fossil Temps or doing um, supine leg checks or doing um, erector um, spinal muscle around the thoracics uh, for hypertonicity there, which sometimes, which often correlates with the short leg. If you aren't able to get um, a good read on the short leg doing the supine leg check, um, if you can get an x-ray on kids, um, more power to you. I usually refer out for x-rays. And my x-ray facility looks at me sideways when I send kids to them. Hmm. So sometimes I may or may not be able to get some x-rays done. Um, But ultimately, the history is the biggest thing. So with a newborn or an infant, the biggest thing is also getting their birth history, the mom's history prior. How was the prenatal period? Was there a lot of stress? Because what people fail to realize is also that kiddos mirror their parents. So they're looking to their mom specifically for nervous system regulation. Mm. So that's why skin is so important. So if a baby's upset, they look to their parents to help regulate their nervous system, whether that's through their breathing, whether it's through their body temperature, whether it's through their heart rate. So their heart rate's elevating, their breathing's elevated. And also you give a baby to them and they're doing the same as I think that's not gonna calm down that baby whatsoever. 
Right. No, cortisol passes through the placenta. So if the mom is stressed during their uh, prenatal period, that's just passing those same things on to that baby. Wow. All right. So knowing what the history is, what medications they have had, was it a vaginal birth? Was it a C-section? Was it forceps, vacuum? You know, did they have antibiotic uses? Um, were they gram positive or gram negative when they were um, uh, coming through uh, the birth canal? Um, so all those things can play a role in terms of those newborns, okay? Whether or not there's feeding issues. So sometimes you may wanna check some primitive reflexes because that will play a role into whether or not that's an idea of um, why they may not be progressing in the way that they should progressing. Now, does that mean that you have to do primitive reflex integration? No, that means you just observing, you like check the box saying like, okay, this is here, this is not here, that's not there yet. And then go about adjusting how you would typically adjust and then doing your re-exam, recheck it. Yeah. All right. Because if it's okay, if it's all of a sudden it's not there when it was not supposed when it was there previously, and you're like, bet, that's great. Or if all of a sudden it wasn't there, now it appears, and now we're gonna work on moving more through that brain trajectory. That's also a good thing because that's gonna tell you whatever that child is being brought in for, we're moving in the right direction because the brain is making changes. Mm-hmm. And the brain is what's going to be dictating how this child is going to be moving through life. All yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and I don't think parents are well-educated, right? I mean, I don't know of any time where any of our people in our birth team or pediatrician had ever talked to us about milestones, right? It's like, they, they assume, you know, and, and people don't, and you got to, how many people that have, I've had patients, they, they didn't let their kids crawl. They were like, tried to force them to walk right away. And I know there's changing guidelines, which is a crazy other thing, but, um, I don't think folks always know where to turn for that information and know what to expect when you're thrust in the middle of parenting, you're not sleeping, you know, it's a huge change of life. I mean, sometimes you don't even know which way to go or what to think about, but that whole trajectory through that developmental process and on, beyond is, uh, you know, really important context. Cause it's the same with our patients, right? They come in with neck pain, right? They're thinking like what happened two weeks ago when my neck started hurting, they're not thinking about the car accident they had 20 years ago. So connecting the dots a- across the timeline, I think is huge, no matter who you're treating and, and helping them understand the idea that like health is a spectrum over time. And there's definite, you know, inflection points where, where things need to change. Uh, but observing those changes and knowing how to navigate the changes is, is a big part of what we do, you know, in our particular niche in chiropractic. So, yeah. And especially like, okay, same thing when you see people like, um, you know, the retracing, you know, um, idea, you know, when your body starts to get stressed, sometimes it starts to regress back to, you know, previous symptoms or things that you thought were actually, you know, you move past, Right. Yeah. So the same thing with kiddos, okay? If all of a sudden you de- developed a compensatory thing, like all of a sudden you skip something, it's no different than when you see people who have traumatic brain injuries. What happens? They regress back all the way, hmm. you know? Same yeah, thing that's when, a kid gets, when a kid gets stressed too much, they end up regressing backwards to that point where they may have, you know, decided to develop a compensation somewhere along the way. Whether or not, okay, when you see they get stressed, they start hitting, okay? Maybe they didn't have enough proprioception input at that point in time. That's why they like using weighted blankets. That's why they don't like tags in their clothing. They don't like any of those things. But yet, you know, before they go past proprioception, you know, you have, you know, fine touch um, and gross motor. Gross motor becomes before fine touch. And then there's other things that you move forward from that point. 
you know, but if they start to get too much stress or there's increased demand on them, they start to regress towards that. So you see them hitting their heads on things, you know, they're lashing out, they're punching, or you see kids like, okay, maybe they have auditory verbal issues and they start having issues regarding that, like they start screaming. So they're trying to control their environment when they when the demand gets too high, even though they know how to use their words, they know how to do all these other things, they know how to communicate effectively. But if they get too stressed, they start regressing backwards. So I don't being able to identify some of those things as well. You don't have necessarily have to do anything for it. It's just about knowing these specific things. That's why I really like when my mentor says it's not a matter of doing more. It's a matter about knowing more. It's about being able to identify and being able to relate with these families and these parents as to what to do. So it's sort of like you're a mind reader. You can anticipate based on what you see in the history, what you're seeing elsewhere um, to basically be able to move them along. You're like, okay, we can anticipate seeing this. We're seeing this now. Okay, great. They're holding their adjustments of doing this. Now we may want to, you know, pawn you off to another provider that can work with you for this primitive reflexes, or if we need them for speech development, or if we need all these other, you know, adjunctive care, whether or not you choose to do that in your office or not, it's the fact that you, you know what to look for, you know? Yeah. Not to say that you're not doing chiropractic still. It's like, okay, you still need to know how the body functions. Right. Yeah. And that's, um, it's, it's creating context, you know, because with symptoms in general or any dysfunction, like the context is why we make a big deal about health in general, because the way it affects your life and, and the trajectory of your life. And I know, um, depending on your community, you know, like I said, I've got access to a lot of these resources. I know a great myofunctional therapist. There's you know, great pediatric chiropractors, there's a pretty well-rounded team. You might not always have that in your community, depending on where you are. So if this is something you're passionate about and a, a, a population that you're passionate about serving, you may run into a situation where, you know, it behooves you to go get the training. You know, maybe you expand your chiropractic scope a little bit to be able to meet the need uh, if it can't be met elsewhere. Um, and, yeah. and I, I'm thinking about a kiddo that I've seen recently, and I know that this may be a situation that others can can be aware of. Uh, he had maybe been a little bit delayed on a few things. And uh, when his little brother was born, you know, the parents saw a big time regression in a few areas. And even just being able to let him know ahead of time, hey, that that could be actually, you know, a normal or expected response helps them understand, again, the context of what's going on with the health of their little one, because they're already dealing with, you know, the new baby and the, and the way that changes the dyna- dynamic of the family and the household, let alone you know, challenges with your, with your big brother. And so, um, you know, an important point to make. And I think that's probably something that had I had the context in the conversation that we're having now ahead of time, I may have been able to you know, plant that seed ahead of the, ahead of the curve. I didn't see her through a pregnancy or anything like that anyway, but, um, a good point to be made. Yeah. Because it's like with anything else, just like, you know, you have an allostatic load, you have resiliency, mm. you have a threshold. All right. Cause that's what ends up subluxating you is meaning that stresses overshoots how much you are allostatic load is or your resiliency is yeah. is when you no longer have that it surpasses that threshold you get subluxated right yeah so there's no difference with these other kiddos you know this this child that you're speaking of specifically you know they have a threshold that they were at already all right i don't know if they were under care with you or currently or what they were under care with you for so they already know that okay their threshold had already been surpassed because they're exhibiting x y and z right. and that's what brought them in 
into the office. Now you're going to introduce more stressors by introducing another child into the mix. So it's going to be disrupting their routine. It's going to be taken away. Um, they're no longer the priority in their parent. Like they don't feel like they're the priority anymore. Right. They have to share. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden that's an increased stressor. Now they're going to be regressing backwards. And I don't like to use regression, but that for all intents and purposes of this conversation, yeah. um, they're, they're, they're deflecting or they're reflecting, deflecting or regressing backwards to a point where how, where they may have had a compensation along their brain development. And then if you knew where that was, you'd be like, okay, we can anticipate that this may happen. Mm-hmm. All right. And in doing so that eases puts the parents at ease and then you can provide some strategies for the parents yeah. as to how to better, you know, handle that so we can continue moving in the direction that they want to be. Because yeah. they may not be holding as well, you know, when they have yeah. this increased stressor. Well, that's you know? a great that's a great point. I was just going to ask you, which is, you know, as you think about care planning for kiddos, and I know we had, we had identified a few different populations. So let's for the, you know, all intents and purposes here, say like zero to five, five to 10, 10 beyond. Um, how do you go about care planning with this? There's just wildly different opinions I've seen about how to manage the care of a pediatric patient. And, and obviously in the upper cervical setting, most of us are going to be very focused on like, we want to get these kids cleared out and holding. Um, and so let's just kind of hold that up as maybe our primary outcome. Uh, but with some of these other considerations, what's your, what's your thought process with care planning for kids? Okay. So care planning with kids for me specifically, you know, again, there's a myriad of different, uh, ideas or solutions that people may provide. Um, I tell people for me, there's a minimum of 12 visits that I want to see kiddos like small kiddos. So like say zero to three. Zero to two, more likely. All right. Now, I, I'm. It depends on what brings the families in. So you also have to set your goals and expectations up front, because a lot of times when the parent brings in a child of that young, if it's for infections, if it's for feeding issues, if it's for colic, it's for constipation, they're still focused on that because the parents are already in a sympathetic dominant state. They're stressed. They're like, okay, something's wrong with my child. We need to get a handle on what's going on with my child. And once that's done, then we may be done. Even yeah. though it doesn't matter how much you spare them, yeah. you know, about the chiropractic philosophy, they're already in a sympathetic state. They're not retaining any of that information. They're like, okay, can you help my child? Yeah. And what do we need to do to actually help our child? So um, so with that being said, I say, okay, I say a minimum of 12 visits, we'll end up doing a re-exam and then we'll, we'll have another conversation to that. At that conversation, a lot of times they're more receptive to moving forward on with wellness because they're no longer in that sympathetic state. And sometimes we may have the issue under control, which was brought them into the office in the first place. Yeah. All right. As it pertains to like uh, upper cervical and how that works a lot of the times, and there's some confliction, you know, as I learn more, um, I just have, I just presented more questions than um, answers for me. Mm. Yes. Cause I'm, like, I'm always under the impression that like, yes, kids are very resilient. They respond great to chiropractic care, which is true. But given the fact when we think of things moving forward with as what we see in older adults, when they come into the office, you know, whether it's congenital anomalies, whether it's reverse cervical curves, whether it's generation, whether it's whatever it could be, like how um, the atlas is rotated, how the condyles may have shifted. Um, a lot of those things are going to be developed in those first thousand days of a kid's life. Okay. Huh. That's when the brain actually gets the most development. Um, 
your vestibular system um, uh, is what's responsible for developing your cervical curve. If they're not doing tummy time, um, they, as we know, the upper cervical spine is held in place by muscles and ligaments, but if they can't hold their head up, you know, they have the gravity is one force that's always working against them, you know, and they don't have good tone, then they're not going to have good cervical curve development. They may get some asymmetries in their spine. They may get these things that we're seeing later on. Yeah. So, and what in my experiences in looking at all these other things and knowing what these kids are going through, they may need to be checked and they may not be holding as frequently as one would think they would do, especially mm. if they're coming in with symptomatic issues. Okay. Because even though we don't want to talk about symptoms, symptoms still are telling us a window into how that nervous system is actually functioning or not functioning. Right. Right. And then if we see like, okay, they don't tolerate tummy time, but they, uh, but they're holding their adjustment. Something else is going on because yeah. I, I, there's cervical tone. The cervical musculature is what's being promoted when they're doing tummy time. They're feeling proprioception input. They're feeling that visual system. They're feeling all these uh, vestibular input. They're doing all these things to help develop that cervical curve to make sure that it's going to be working appropriately and they actually get that input into their brain. So um, if they are showing symptoms at one point in time, that means they're not getting the appropriate input from their world because their brain can't process it and therefore it won't be able to have appropriate motor output. Mm. So I end up looking at other things and checking a little bit harder yeah. um, when we're doing things to make sure instead of being like, okay, um, and this, I may be like a pariah for saying this. I know we, we want to look for reasons not to adjust when we're older so that bodies can adapt. I triple check. I'm like, okay, I need to make, make, make sure that this baby is holding yeah. If I have any doubts that they aren't, I'm adjusting them. Hmm. Versus okay. the other way around saying like, okay, the body's going to adapt a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. No, I, I appreciate that perspective because I think, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the way I manage cases with kids typically. And I think probably I've underdone it, you know, and, and for the sake of wanting to be very mindful of, you know, not reinforcing any negative you know, neurological compensations or, or things like that. It's like, man, you know, like, I, like you said, I've always been under the impression kids are so resilient. They're super, you know, responsive to what we do. And, and for most of the kids I see, they're not neuroatypical. They're not dealing with a lot of these things. So you can categorize these cases, right? Like you're going to have the straightforward, you know, check a kid after they're born, correct their atlas, set them up for a good life. And then you're going to have the whole spectrum of other, other considerations where you're, you're talking a little bit more advanced case management. Um, so just like with, with regular patients, I'm really interested in this idea of like categorizing cases. Uh, so for those situations that, you know, I might be more prone to refer to the diplomate down the road, you know, and have that, uh, that as the primary resource and say, Hey, they're going to be able to adjust their upper neck too, you know, and they're trained in that and they're going to do it safely and effectively. Uh, but they're also going to have a bigger context for understanding a comprehensive way for you guys to get the most out of chiropractic for your kid in this season. And, and yeah, that's where, and that's what it boils down to. I think for uh, a lot of upper cervical docs, when it comes to things like, okay, I know so many upper cervical docs who are so invested in the upper cervical spine and learning everything about it and the nuances of it. And 
as I said, like I entrenched myself in that. As I said, I've done the Blair series. I've done the chest hypercervical. I've learned it from two different, uh, like, you know, schools. So I am just as invested in that, but it's also like, okay, I also need to understand that this population is a little bit different. And if I can change their trajectory and knowing that maybe I won't see what I see in adults now, if I start early enough and change that, because what I don't want to end up happening for, for these kiddos is yes, I want to be very conservative, but I also don't want to turn into a watch and wait scenario to wait till something comes up and then it's like, oh snap, now I need to see them more frequently. Did I miss something yeah. earlier on? Yeah. It's like, oh, they were, they were holding, they were clear and all of a sudden they're not developing the way that they should be. It's like, well, crap, you know, did I yeah. miss something or was, or did I not see the writing on the wall because I just didn't know enough? Not necessarily I didn't need to do more, I just didn't know enough what to look for to be like, okay, maybe I do need to check them a little bit more frequently than what yeah. I was actually doing. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that makes sense. I think, you know, I, uh, previous mutual friend of ours, Dr. Cameron Bearder and I did a podcast talking about some, um, some clinical neuroscience concepts and we are both of the mind. And I, I hear this from you too, that when you know something, you're responsible for it. And when you don't know something and you choose to not find out, you're also responsible for that choice. And so it is, it is, you know, we have a lot of, uh, there's a lot of pressure on us to take good care of folks. Right. And I think depending on your, your values in chiropractic and the way that you feel is the best way to express those values in practice, it's going to, it's going to prompt you on to further discovery and further training. And sometimes it's not always more detail related to the technique and more rabbit holes related to your technique. Maybe it's a new fresh perspective you know, that adds the context that's required. Looking at your stuff from someone else's point of view is a hard thing to do, but it sometimes eliminates, you know, the blind spots in the areas where you have the opportunity to change that trajectory, because that's really the promise of pediatric chiropractic. When we talk about getting kids checked, you know, we talk a big game about changing the trajectory of their lives uh, with the things that we do. And and that means different things at different times. And so, uh, you know, I, I hear your heart on that and appreciate where you're coming from. And I know a lot of us will say, yeah, I'm not really there with that, you know, with the pediatric care. And, and but we, again, want to have these conversations so that folks have a greater context for understanding what to expect and how to navigate and how to find resources and, you know, how to, um, you know, give these patients and parents uh, a good understanding of, of what a healthy life looks like for a kid, right? Because it's, you know, it, it, we, we come at it from our own experiences, right? Like parents, you'll end up doing what you learned from your parents and the, and the few parents that were close to you, you know, so you end up, you know, navigating life through those experiences. Yeah. And then, and to, to um, go a little bit further with some of the things in leading into one of the other questions I know have coming up, it's like, okay, with communicating with parents and communicating with other providers that are on the teams, it's like, okay, well, if you can't speak the same lingo that these other providers are working, uh, like, are, are talking to you, then what? If you don't understand, they're like, okay, it's like, well, this is what I found. This is what we've been working on. And then we see that this is able to change X, Y, and Z. And then it's like, but they still need work on A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where I think that it'll be beneficial for you to go see so-and-so. And then you'll be able to have a conversation with whatever those providers are and what they're seeing. It's like, yep, I saw the same thing, but you know, that's not in my wheelhouse, but I was just making observations saying how what I was doing through this adjustment 
could influence their nervous system to actually change these outcomes. Yeah. So it's just, you're just using a lot of the knowledge that you have as other objective measures that you can just continue to observe. Not necessarily, you're not treating those things per se. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. And, and that's true with other things that we like to talk about, like dental occlusion and TMJ and airway considerations and upper cervical and all this other stuff. Uh, same, same concept, you know, with a different population and different team. And speak, speaking of the team, who are the folks that you're working the most closely with in your practice, the other professionals in the sort of uh, pediatric health space? So I work with occupational therapists. I work with some pediatric physical therapists. I work with speech language pathologists. I work with neurodevelopmental optometrists. I work with pediatric dentists. I work with lactation consultants. I work with uh, pediatricians. I work with nurse practitioners. I work with who else? Um, I think that's midwives the, and doulas. Yeah, uh, midwives, doulas. Um, um, yeah, so I work with a gamut of like OBs. I work with some of them as well. Um, luckily, I have um, my undergrad gives me a little bit of clout when I can get into some some offices and some of my classmates from undergrad are medical doctors uh, in this area. So if they trust me, um, then uh, from a personal relationship, they're more apt to actually uh, have conversations with me from a professional standpoint as well. Yeah. Sometimes you got to flex on them, you know, and like, <laughs> and if you've got common ground, I mean, this is the thing, like with, with relationships in general, common ground is the foundation for building a relationship. And so if, if that's an angle that you have, if that's leverage that you have in your community, then for a- absolutely all day long, you know, leverage that opportunity because it's, it's in the best interest of their patients and yours. So love it. Um, yeah. So, so for some of the, for the upper cervical lingo, you know, and some of the upper cervical cliches and things that are out there, when we're talking to kids and parents in in an upper cervical office, what are some of the maybe do's or don'ts or the things that just kind of, you know, grind your gears when you hear some of these things uh, applied to pediatric patients? Um, wow. Um, I, could you, I don't, I don't think I understand your question. Okay. So let's talk about some of the do's or don'ts when talking with uh, parents about their child's care. I know like, for example, one of the things I was thinking of as I was saying that is, you know, maybe the holding is healing concept, right? Like you just referenced that in some circumstances that might not be the case. Um, So cliche applicable in upper cervical practice may not be a blanket statement that we want to say in every situation, you know, like you said, when a, when a parent's facing a, a challenge with a kid and they're not needing to be adjusted, but they're not, progressing the way you expect. Um, so what are some of the other communication challenges, things that we should or shouldn't uh, be saying to parents from a chiropractic standpoint? Um, so if you, if you do choose to, you know, like, I don't think holding is healing. It's going to be necessarily a bad thing to say to, you know, families, as long as you set it up correctly up front, mm. you know, as long as you manage expectations, as this is what's going to be going on. Um, then it, it allows for that conversation to be had but it does make it difficult when a child is not moving through what they anticipate being what they should see. Yeah. Right. Like they're not seeing any changes like, okay, if a child comes in for reflux and all of a sudden you're like, well, you know, we know that the vagus nerves, uh, you know, affects, 
you know, the way that your digestive is actually going to be working and therefore we're working on the atlas and that the atlas is going to be in the proper position it's holding, then that should be affecting, you know, the reflux, right? And they're like, okay, why is my baby, my baby spinning up more now? And you're saying that my baby doesn't need to be adjusted. That so yeah. what, what, what are we doing here? Yeah. <laughs> they're like, so you made one adjustment over 12 visits and nothing's changed with my baby's reflux. And you're saying that, you know, you spoke of this vagus nerve or anything else like that. So sometimes it's going to be harder for a parent to understand that a little bit when they're coming to you for solutions. Yeah. Um, so just managing, having realistic expectations about it. Um, one of the things that I would say, and this is not specific for upper cervical, but when you are working with kids, um, don't talk about kids in front of them. Hmm. Yeah. Like, the, I, you know, that's interesting. You say that I've noticed myself doing that recently. And I was like, why am I talking? Like they're not right here. Yeah. Elaborate. Like, yeah. Like they, they understand and they listen and they typically know like their parents told them what they're coming in to see you for, whether it's constipation, whether it's nocturnal enuresis, where these issues, whether it's developmental things have to do the consults over the phone or via zoom when the kids aren't there. Because you're talking about negative things in their life and they're probably already hearing enough negative things. They don't need to be talked about negatively in front of themselves. Yeah. It just reinforces bad things for them. Hmm. And then they start acting out even more. Interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought about that, but back to the point on logistics, that's a great, that's a great tip for making that first connection is maybe do the the consult over the phone or zoom using, you know, telemedicine app or something like that, because Number one, they're already stressed about bringing their kid down and having to like pay. They can't pay attention to you and what you're saying about what's going to happen when the kid's freaking out. And it's the first time there. Right. So they're already distracted. Now, that's a great way to do it. Set the call up. Call me during nap time. You know, whatever that is. And let's just have a good talk freely. Yeah. Let's talk freely when we're not worried about, you know, managing the kid. That's a good point. Okay, And uh, yeah, yeah, don't don't talk about the kid in front of them, you know, to the parent. That's a good point. And then, um, well, not in front of the parent, in front of the kid. Like, you don't want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And then also it's like, okay, um, I don't know how other upper cervical docs have managed this either. And maybe they've managed this, but resting and post checks. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, you're like, don't move, just lay here. But they're like, I want to play with toys. I want to get up and move. I want to do other things. So you're like, okay. Like, so I don't know how other upper cervical docs manage, you know, the resting aspect of it. Um, and then coming in for a post-check, um, especially if, you know, they are, um, you know, wildly, you know, they have a lot of energy. They have a lot of behavioral things. They're acting up. They need a snack. They need all these other things. And the parents are like, we're just going to leave. You're like, all right, well, I'll just see you next time. So trying to navigate, you know, some of those traditional upper cervical um, hard and fast, I don't want to say hard and fast rules, but the things that are staples. Yeah, the the protocols that you have in place that you learn what you do otherwise. Um, Yeah. What you you also don't want the parent to do is then shove a phone in front of their face. You know, and say like, okay, he said you need to rest and you're not going to sit still unless I give you an iPad. And we're like, oh, you know, that's really not what we we're trying to accomplish either. So, yeah. so yeah, I was you, like, you yeah, choose so, your, you choose your battles. So, so yeah. So some of those things may not work, but at least not in my experience, but it may be different for other, you know, upper cervical backs. 
Yeah, and great yeah. point to be made. I mean, any con- any of these conversations we have, like we always have to keep in mind that no one person could be an expert on all things related to a topic, right? So we're, yeah. we're bringing to the table someone's area of expertise, their training, their credentials, their level of experience, and these things may change over time. You know, as you get uh, down the road in practice, and y- you already have a lot of years of practice under your belt, but inevitably you'll continue to gain knowledge. That's a core value of yours. And so maybe we'll revisit the conversation in the future and you know, you can go back and say, ah, that thing I said, you know, at this point, here's my stance on it. So, you know, take it all for what it's worth and and understand that, you know, Brian's just sharing from his heart and his level of experience up to this point. And I, I really appreciate you doing that, you know, cause it's a big deal to, to share what you know with other people, you know, for their benefit uh, is. And so I appreciate, appreciate you doing that. Um, any other resources or further education for pediatric care? I mean, folks that are listening to this going like, yeah, I'm really into upper cervical. I'm down with that. That's what I'm doing with my big kids or my adults. Um, but I'm really, really fascinated in some of these other populations you're talking about. How do I become more, more equipped? You referenced a few in the beginning, but if you'd like to, you know, maybe highlight a few places for, for chiropractors to go get good training. And we'll also link these in the show notes so folks can follow that through. Of course. So, um, what's near and dear to my heart is the ICPA. So the International Chiropractic and Pediatric Association, that that is the gold standard in my book in terms of at least getting a vast array of knowledge and information. And that's a good starting off point is going through their series, whether or not you want to take the certification exam at the end or not to become certified, that's up to you. But it's definitely good information to know. And um, it, it varies in terms of full spine and everything else, but at least you get some of the background and understanding of what may present into your office when someone brings a child in. So it gives you a good base knowledge. Uh, Depends how far down the rabbit hole you want to go. One of my mentors, Dr. Monica Berger, you can look at the Intercept for Life program or the Developing Minds University. Um, That really deals with a lot of neurodevelopmental things. um, And it's preconception care because a lot of things that we see in kids starts with preconception. Mm. Um, So at least understanding that information is if that's where you, if you have a passion for this and you want to, change it from the beginning so you won't have these issues presenting into your office is dealing with the mom's preconception wise. Yeah. Because right? that's where all it starts. So interesting. Uh, Monica Berger is excellent in that. Then I also reference Amy Spolstra in the Focus Academy. Um, that's awesome as awesome as well. Um, she has comes from a different lens um, in terms of certain things, but she is her focus is on behavioral learning and developmental challenges, similar to Monica Berger, but it's a different lens uh, with chiropractic, um, uh, just gives it a different view of how the brain's actually developing. Um, and it's a little bit more, um, not as strenuous and not as robust um, uh, and overly complicated. So it's a good entry point for a mm. lot of people. Then, as I said, Martin Rosen, uh, amazing as I took his SOT pediatric program, um, deals with a lot of the cranials, um, other spine checks um, that you can do in more complex cases when they come into your office, which you can actually look for. Um, one of my mentors, and I may also become a pariah for saying this, um, saying that the occiput is actually part of the upper cervical spine. It is called C0. So looking at the occiput, uh, the sphenoid, which mirrors the pelvis, looking at some of those cranial bones. Um, some people do consider the cranium part of the upper cervical spine, um, but purists probably say no. So, you know, that's on you. Yeah. 
And that, and then lastly, um, there is also the pediatric experience with Tony Abel. That mm-hmm. that's also um, something that's actually really um, prevalent um, and getting a lot of traction, and a lot of people are doing that as well. Um, so, and he does have a focus on the upper cervical spine. Most pediatric chiropractors, as we said, do have a focus on the upper cervical spine. Right. Um, so, that's a good area to have resources to start. Um, I think I've listed almost all of them awesome. because I've taken almost all of them as well. So <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. I appreciate that. Cause it's, I, you know, as you say that, I remember uh, Tony was a keynote speaker at the Blair conference uh, a number of years ago. And so folks will remember the passion that he brings, you know, and the level of scientific understanding that he brings. And I, it was well-received in the Blair community. So um, for sure, these other resources will be worth exploring too. And even if something like the ICPA, the International Chiropractic Pediatrics Association, it's one of those organizations that's just good to be a member of, right? Just yeah. support them, you know, with your monthly membership dues, uh, because they're doing research, you know, they're, they're putting these programs together. Uh, they're training chiropractors to care for kids and they're subluxation based, right? So they're pretty dialed in with our philosophy and how we want to apply that. So uh, it's one of those things that's, you know, good for putting points on the scoreboard. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate your time and knowledge and expertise and sharing with our audience. Uh, any last tips, words of encouragement, or, or things you'd like to wrap up with? Yeah, I just want to finish up with this and just want to remind people and share this statement that my mentor told me, and I, I alluded throughout this podcast. Um, just because you know more doesn't mean you have to do more, all right? Upper cervical is strong enough in itself. Hmm. You don't need to do anything beyond that, but doesn't mean that you don't need to continue learning and educating yourself about other things. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and check the show notes for links to our hosts, guests, and other relevant information. And head on over to www.blairchiropractic.com to find out more about Blair Upper Cervical Chiropractic or to find a doctor close to you. If you're a chiropractor or healthcare provider, you'll want to look at www.blairtechnique.com for information on upcoming events, professional development resources, and some very useful online training modules. You can also find a link to make a charitable donation, which is greatly needed to advance research. Until next time, be well.